You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., and we also offer online shopping, curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. You can also find a schedule of all our upcoming events on there as well. It's my pleasure to welcome Madrushi Ghosh and Guy Branham onto the podcast today to talk about Madrushi's new book, Kabar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory, and Family. Madrushri Ghosh works in oncology diagnostics and is a social justice activist. Her work has been awarded a notable mention in Best American Essays in Food Writing and a Pushcart Prize nomination. She lives in San Diego, California. Guy Branham is an American comedian, actor, and author of My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. How are you two doing today? Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right, hanging in there. A little bit sick, but not with COVID. So, you know, I complain. <laughs> How's that even possible? <laughs> right? I know. Like... <laughs> I mean, the flu went away when COVID came in. That's right. The sore throat only has one origin now. It can only be COVID, I've heard. <laughs> um, Adushri, you have something picked out to read from your new book? Sure, sure, oh. absolutely. Shall we do this? Sounds good. Um, I think I'll read from the first chapter just a little bit so I don't I don't make you all fall asleep. Um, let's do this. All right. Um, in 1993, when I boarded my first international flight, I sat at the window seat watching my country slowly dim into a whiff of clouds in the dark. I was headed to New York, the first daughter to leave for a PhD, the first Ghosh girl headed to America. The man sitting in the middle seat, a middle-aged Punjabi, watching me cry into my handkerchief, asked, Beta, first time to America. I nodded and asked, where do you live? Yuba City. Seeing my confusion, he added, we Punjabi farmers settled there decades ago. We grow all the produce, us and the Mexicans. His hands holding his whiskey were tanned dark, his skin thick. The metal kara on his right wrist gleamed softly in the glow of the overhead light. You're American. Yes, he said proudly. My grandfather married a Mexican when he moved to Yuba. I rolled my eyes disbelieving, but kept quiet. Why question a stranger? Later at dinner, he helped me pull the small butter packet since I had no idea which corner to pull the foil out from. It was a small rectangle with Lando Lakes emblazoned on it. A young Native American woman's face looked back, giving me butter obsequiously, a woman offering gifts as if to earn friendship. In that moment, I felt I was that woman, presenting gifts as if to earn a friendship. Later, much later in 2020, the butter brand removed the butter maiden image after public outcry of how racist and stereotypical the image of a subservient Indian was. At that time in 1993, however, I was in awe that butter could fit in a package that small and that the packaging could be that secure. Here, he said, look at this notch, very easy. Pulling at the foil, his hands expertly separating it from the plastic, he added, the butter is good, from Minnesota. You know Minnesota? Land of lakes, many lakes? 
Ignoring his question because I had no idea about Minnesota or lakes of any kind in America, I said thank you and dug into the butter. It tasted like nothing. Air, oil, nothing. Amul butter. Now, that's what I grew up on. That was butter. The taste of sunshine, cow milk, churned whey, tinge of salt, the blue packaging, the yellow butter slabs wrapped in blue printed parchment paper, the butter melting in the deli summer. Ma used to cut the butter into slivers for daily use, swiftly transferring the rest of the butter into the slot on the top part of the drawer of our trusty Kelvinator refrigerator before it transformed into goop. The image on the package was the Amul girl, a precocious child in a poofy polka dot dress with her hair partially up in a ponytail. A cartoon speech bubble saying utterly, butterly delicious and Amul in block letters above that with pasteurized on the next line, butter on the next. Over the years, the label has changed, the packaging has become spiffier, but the slogan remains. I've never been able to read Utterly Butterly Delicious without hearing the way the slogan was briefly and excitedly sung by a high-pitched jingle singer in Doordarshan TV ads. I tried to slather the Lando Lakes butter on the rock hard dinner roll. It was cold on the Thai Airways flight and the butter never really melted. I put pieces of it on top of the bread like dewdrops on a rock. I never asked his name. In my graduate school apartment in New York, I looked for Yuba City on a US map. It was very far away. It was also not a city, not like New York. During the summer of 1977, Baba brought home three guavas from Dehradun, a hill station north of us. Fruit in Dehradun was exotic by Delhi standards. Sweet lychees, juicy lokats, citrus fruits, mangoes, and guavas are what Dehradun was made of. In Bengali, guavas are called piara. The Dehradun piaras Baba brought were dark avocado green skin, not the usual yellow with brown spots. The inside was pinkish red with white seeds peeking out. We added a liberal sprinkling of salt and chili pepper to enhance the fruit's sweetness and slight tartness. Ma made am sharbat with roasted unripe mangoes, sweetened with molasses, spiced with roasted cumin, chili, and salt, blended in water. It wasn't strange to have fruit with a fruit drink then. It was hot, and as a family, that's what we did on a summer day. Combining Bengali and Hindi, Ma joked, Piara se piarhua, I'm in love with guava. In the United States, the Immigration Act of 1917 prevented Asians from becoming citizens. The Sikh farmers, all male in Yuba and Imperial counties in Northern and Southern California respectively, couldn't return to India because if they did, they wouldn't be permitted back into the United States. The 1913 California Alien Land Law prohibited them from owning land because they couldn't become citizens. In 1850, California's anti-miscegenation law prevented whites from marrying blacks, Filipinos, and Asians. The Sikh farmers couldn't go home to marry Indian women since they'd be unable to return back to the country and couldn't marry American white women due to anti-miscegenation laws. As a result, the Sikh farmers began marrying Mexican women. About 378 marriages were performed in the early 20th century between the Sikh farmers and the Mexican women in the central and imperial valleys of California, according to Karen Leonard, University of um, California, Irvine. Of the nearly 2,000 Sikh men, nearly 30% of them married Mexican women. The farming men grew prune and peach trees, more than 60% of the produce in Yuba and Sutter counties. The guava, a Mexican fruit, is also grown in the plains of Punjab. Stop here. That was that was the first time that I cried reading your book. 
was oh. that that passage right there because I am from Yuba City, and um, when I am like out in the world in New York or Los Angeles, um, when I get into a cab or an Uber or a black car and I see a Death Star, I see a Kara, I see a name that is a name that I grew up with, um, I strike up a conversation and am immediately talking to somebody who's been on the road where I grew up, you know, that oh, wow. like these um, Punjabis from all over the world come um, for the uh, Kirtan Nagar uh, at the Gurdwara um, in, in November. And like, it, it is like, you know, so far away from home having this little bit of home. Yeah. And so uh, what do you do when you need to feel home? Like what, what do you do when you need to feel home? I'm, I'm just going to talk about what you just said when you, when you're in a, in a cab or an Uber and you, you meet someone with a kara or um, like this happens to me in New York city quite a bit when I get into an Uber and you hear them speaking um, Bengali because I'm Bengali. They speak Bengali, but you know, they're not from India. Yeah. You know they're from Bangladesh. You know, it's, it's from your parents' country, but I, I consider myself Indian because I grew up there. Yeah. I was born there. And, uh, and they automatically assume that I don't understand. Uh -huh. And so it's lovely to, 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 to connect. Uh, on that basis, on that language, which is slightly different. It's got more Urdu words in it yeah. uh, from their side of the border. And from my side of the border, it's not. And then you start talking about which village or which city they come from. And I've not been to Bangladesh, but that's my connection. Language is my connection. Or you talk about food and food is your connection. When my father came here to, to San Diego around 2003, 2004, he would stop any Indian on the street. <laughs> stop them, and he just start asking them questions of yeah. like, what's your village, what's your country, what's your you know which part of the country did you come from? And I feel that's how you feel home is when you find that connection, that connection that that gets you to a different level of uh, belonging. Well, like just sort of realizing that just saying the words Yuba City, like for any Punjabi Sikh in like, you know, their eyes brighten up and it's a village that they know, you know, um, it's it's really lovely. Like, um, all right, this is the thing I told you yesterday that we would open up with, but I have to ask you. So you have this quote from your mom who says that you should never spend more than 20 minutes in the kitchen. How can you be a food writer mm -hmm. and try to adhere to this idea of you should never spend more than 20 minutes in the kitchen? Uh, there was this, uh, was it a Saturday Night Live skit? Maybe it was, I don't know, one of those skits where they said 10 minute cooking with so-and-so and they're like chopping their fingers off and there's blood yeah. everywhere. I don't know if you remember that. I yeah. always think of that whenever I say that, I'm like, I shouldn't say this because I'm jinxing myself. But, <laughs> um, but I feel, and I, whoever listens to this, I want you guys to go to whichever place you go shop and get uh, get a couple of pressure cookers. Futura is the brand for me. I, I'm not talking about an Instapot. I'm not talking about an air fryer. I'm talking about a pressure cooker. Every uh, self-respecting Indian person has a pressure cooker in their house. Um, the only reason, only way you can cook that fast is when you when you can cook quickly and accelerate the force times mass, uh, force equals mass times acceleration formula. Um, 
my mother always also said, you know, we, we used to have this portable uh, gas, so she, there were just two burners, and she would she would literally be cooking on both both the burners. This is first world problems. We have four, we have six, we have eight burners. Right? <laughs> so yeah. So it's easy for me. It's easy. I don't think it's that difficult if you know what you're doing. Um, and even if you don't know what you're doing, so long as you're not burning the food, food usually is pretty forgiving. Um, my mom's mom had mm. such terror around pressure cookers that my mom would never use one. And when I like got her and I got her an instant pot and she just won't use it because she, she like, it's, you know, um, she's scared it's going to explode at her, which leads yeah. me to the question, like, you, like, do, to what extent did being a scientist affect the way that you approached cooking and food? Like, did, yeah. it, did, did it change during the course of your education? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, I'll talk about Bengali food because that's what I know best. It's yes. very scientific. Uh, the way you eat is very scientific. You start out with everything is 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 marinated with with rice. Everything combines yeah. with rice because that's the starch you need to to allow for hard proteins to get in your body. You yeah. start first with um, with greens. So, you know, greens with especially mustard greens that has allylisothiocyanate that actually activates your salivary glands and then it, it prepares your stomach. Um, so now the gastric juices are acting. Now your stomach's ready to, to receive um, lentils, dal. Dal uh -huh. itself is, is protein. So yeah. now it can receive lentils. Once that's done, then you get into fish or chicken, which is even more protein. And then you cool it down with a yogurt based dish or you cool it down with with a a, a, a sweet or, or dessert and that's where you end your meal but what i just said is not what what we are used to we are used to 999 buffets where we dump everything together and then we're like oh we ate indian food and now we feel sleepy well you do because you added you know proteins before you added your greens or yeah. you didn't even have greens and so for me, uh, my mother and I would talk about it quite a bit about, you know, why it's so systematic. Um, Indian food is so scientific. It's, it's an ancient culture. We've been we've really got the quality control down. So, so uh, as I get older, you know, I'm, I'm moving away from meats um, or cooking. I mean, I cook it still because I love cooking, but I think I mean, I'm getting more focused on fish because I'm a fish eating Bengali. Um, but the greens here in California, I mean, we're living in, in the best place ever. So the greens in California are just fantastic to cook. Well, I mean, I grew up with like in the almond and peach fields, you just have wild mustard growing and they're like the best time to be in Yuba City, in my opinion, is February mm. when um, there are just like old ladies with, um, you know, their saris tucked between their legs. Um, squatting and getting all of these mustard, these like oh, wild, cool. so fresh mustard greens. And it sort of was interesting, like being sidelong exposed mm. to real Indian food. But like, it wasn't until I went to college, you know, it was like, we didn't end up eating a lot of food from the other communities that were in our, I, that's not true. We ate Mexican food all the time. And you also like, ate food from the Mexican families, but from mm. the Indian families, it wasn't as much. And then 
you get exposed to it's still punja like you know buffet punjabi food when i went yeah. to college you know sure sure yeah i mean it's not but not i'm not dissing buffet punjabi food it's <laughs> fantastic i love it it's great comfort food but that's not how we eat at home um, yeah um, you know that's not how punjabis eat at home either you know mm. they take great offense when i say you know but especially in, in the book tour when i would talk about it they'd be like no that's not how we eat and i'm like yeah that's true but that's what everybody else thinks you do you know yes like talking about food for an american audience that isn't from a european context is like such an like were you ever like why fuck around with this like it's just why is food the easiest thing uh to co-opt why is food such an easy way for white people to appropriate a culture and uh you know turn it into no, something no, that it's no. not white people co-opt things in many different ways <laughs> i think i know the thing is but i feel like we're more likely to do like food is in its way easier than music and like clothes and stuff like that yeah sure uh, the reason we and i i am not saying this facetiously we all need to eat to survive mm-hmm. you know you don't need to wear a sari to survive mm-hmm. You don't need to listen to Bhangra music to survive, but you do need to eat to survive. So it's easy. That's your your straightforward conversation part, right? When you go to an Indian's house, you will be eating Indian food. If you go into a South Asian's house, you'll be eating South Asian food. And, and that starts a conversation. I, I think Anthony Bourdain's done that many times when he's talked about it is, is how do you how do you talk about how do you how do you talk to someone you don't know anything about or want to want to connect with it's through food even if that food is something that you're not familiar with even if that's food that you don't really like even then that's a conversation right that's how you get to know each other but you know when the tendency is and i have to say it's been going on in the white publishing media quite a bit where um where the appropriation has been so part of uh of the culture that people don't even think that they're appropriating Mm -hmm. right uh, it's only recent, maybe five to seven years is when people have started talking about it, not worrying about the consequences because everybody worries, you know, will I publish next now that I've talked about this? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, today, today I was just reading a tweet by Erin Overby um, of The New Yorker. She's an archives, the archives editor about, you know, whistleblowing. So when you're, when you're talking about whistleblowing or you're saying, hey, I called you out. Yeah. Uh, what happens to your career? Everybody wants to publish. So yeah. uh, why is food so easy to, to co-opt? Um, because if you like it, you want to know more about it. And then you want to Americanize it or you want to, you know, Caucasianize it. Uh, and, and that it's just easy. It's easy to do that. And you also get the glory. You get the glory of having taken something and made it something that's American. So discovered it. Yeah. Columbus, is it? Do you think that that democracy is like? Do you think that that makes food also a a richer place to sort of like start talking about social justice? Absolutely, absolutely. I think like food, the presence of food, the type of food, and the absence of food. Yeah tells you exactly what there is to happen. In the western part of India, which is basically a desert 
state, Rajasthan yeah. and, and beyond. It's it's dry. There is no, it's just, it's, there's no water. There's nothing. If you go to somebody's house and the first thing they do is give you water, that means they treat you like God. This, they're giving you the most precious thing in the house, which is water. Yeah. And so you never say no to water there. Yeah. But that's what it is. When there's scarcity, that too tells you what's happening. Sharanya Deepak is, is a food writer uh, who's talked about who's talked about the Dalits, um, the who were previously called the untouchables, who, yeah. who, who are on the caste system way below everybody. And therefore they were not given access to food. They were not given access to to, for example, oil, you know, mustard yeah. oil or or um vegetable oil so they would they would take grind they, they would grow peanuts and grind that and make oil out of that so you you start to get to be very resourceful i mean the, the black community has done that the slave community has done that over and over again we talk about this is what we we indians are doing to our people you know that we don't talk about dalit cuisine but that's what it is like the process of taking like foods that are rooted in scarcity and turning them into something um, that is now sort of like high end is fascinating. Watching, you know, over the course of my life, of my life, short ribs go from this thing that like Jews and African-Americans ate because it was cheap to something that is like, you know, right. just as expensive as a steak um, is, it's funny to watch. And it's also funny to watch these like simultaneous cultural shifts of like the people who are in the know discovering something, making it exclusive, making it something that only like a sophisticated wealthy person will be able to access while at the same time having these food trends that are like, like you both watch something be taken from a cuisine of scarcity and turned into something that's Michelin starred while at the same time, the red velvet cakes that people were excited about 15 years ago are now just everywhere in 7-Eleven. And like that process is very capitalistic and it's very gross, but it's also like reflective of the way that our classes communicate with each other and learn from each other. You know, it's like, as like, I really value coming from a working class town mm -hmm. because it is such a reminder that there are other ways of looking at these things. You know what I mean? Which, okay, here's my next question. Isn't, isn't being an expat just a lot of responsibility? Do you get tired of it? Like, <laughs> it, it just feels like a lot of responsibility. What? Yeah. Like, That's such a great question. Well, okay, so... So there are two two ways I look at this. One is as as a woman of color, woman in science, and then as a woman of color in writing. Um, and I come from a very very politically active uh, um, family where we would discuss politics all the time. You talked about my. She's a Bengali. She's sophisticated. She's there reading. You go. She's That's talking. Me. That's me. Um, <laughs> You know, you, you end up 20 minutes cooking and you take the food to the table and you have a discussion about Marxism or socialism, how it should be or whatever it is. So uh, you come to this country and you come here because you got a scholarship and a fellowship and, and you want to get your PhD and that's why you're here. Um, and uh, so for me as a woman 
of color in science, I take that extremely seriously because it's very important that people understand that if I can do it, everybody else can do it. And I've reached a stage in my career, I've been in this business for 25 years, that I can actively say things like gender pay parity is important because uh -huh. um, I don't have to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified that I have to keep saying that, but I yeah. have to. The second thing is, you know, talking about work-life balance, none of the male scientists ask me about work-life balance, <laughs> even now to this day. It's always the women asking me whether they are PhDs going into their postdoc or yeah. high school kids going into college. It's like, what do you think of work-life balance? And I always tell people, if you like what you do, there is no balance. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no balance. And you'd be, you shouldn't. So then what you're saying is when you work, you're not... Um, when you work, it's work, and mm. therefore it's not life. And that's not true in my opinion. I think if you like science, you, you'd want to do it all the time. That's that's my take on this. So, um, so yeah, am I am I sitting there? Is this is this hard for me? Some days it is, but I feel like it's a privilege. I wouldn't be here if somebody else didn't uh, see the value of me coming here and doing what I'm doing right now, and to be as as open as I can be to tell them these are the mistakes I made. Don't make it because I made it for you, uh, or this is how I succeeded. And this is not, this is not something, this is not a secret to be guarded. Uh, I always tell women as they're climbing up the rung in, in biotech, get a group of friends who are at the same level. And as you climb up the rung, tell each other your salaries. Uh -huh. Fucking tell your salary. Why should you hide your salaries? Why? Uh um, there was a, a fellow comic, mm -hmm. a, a truly amazing woman named Maria Bamford, who uh, is just so transparent ab about like what her financial model for like stand-up shows is and stuff like that. And she was just, there was a period of time when I had created and was hosting a show and she had created and was starring in a show. And she was just like, I will tell you how much I make. Tell me how much you make. Like, you know, this is the only part. It's not a question of knowledge and spark because it's not. If you if you yeah. don't if you don't help each other, if women don't support women, if people yeah. don't support people, you know, then the system works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the system of subjugation works. So I feel, you know, am I? Your question is, am I? Uh, am I tired? Of course, I'm exhausted, but I keep doing this because I feel like if I didn't do it, somebody else may or may not. At least I know I can do it, and I feel <laughs> the same way about writing. Same way about writing, especially women of color. We need to continue to support each other. We need to, you don't need to keep talking about so-and-so got the success and therefore I won't. Yeah. The pie is large enough. And if that pie is not large enough, create your own pie. Just like, your own pie. In my 17 years in stand-up, the like the shift between queer comics having a sense that there can only be one, mm -hmm. let's be mad at the other queer comic to sort of like, and also seeing like, women in comedy do the same thing of like, if we support each other, if we create opportunities for each other, it just is better for all of us. Yeah. Um, on the subject of, of being political, mm -hmm. like the first thing a person reads in Kabar is like a foreword that is boldly political um, <laughs> that says like, you're not going to italicize words that aren't in American English. And I I really loved it. And I really loved the experience of like I, I just love I just love your argument of like it's in a sentence. Fucking read the sentence. You'll figure out what's going on whether you know it or not. And it was just such a, a lovely experience to read it where 
there were words I know and words I didn't know, but what do those italics do when they are sitting there over a word like salwar? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, pe people have been asking me about that quite a bit, but I've been doing this for so many years, it's become, become part of my life. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason is very simple. Um, there, there are many different writers who, who, for whom English was their colonizer's language. Um, for many people, that's what they got educated in. Um, but they know more than one language. We, you know, most South Asians, we know at least three to four to six to seven languages. And we switch from one to the other um, very easily because that's how our brains work. Uh, but, and I've, I've mentioned a few authors, one of them said they would italicize and the other said they won't. And the reason why I don't italicize is because when you italicize something, you want the reader to pay attention to that word because it's different. It's mm -hmm. not in the Oxford Dictionary and therefore um, it's foreign. But those words are not foreign to me. They've never been foreign to me. They're my language. So why should I do that? As soon as I do that, I'm telling the reader, I've already alienated you because this is a language that you think is foreign. Therefore, I'm italicizing it. Therefore, you're taking the lead in how I'm going to tell the story. Well, and it's also like, as you're saying, delegitimizing Indian English, that yeah. like um, it, it's saying that the English that you have always used, mm -hmm. like deserves to be like othered, it is, you know, it, it every is five words. It's a question of being othered. It's absolutely a question of being othered. Um, as soon as you italicize, you're othering, you're making it foreign for somebody else. And I, I, this book is supposed to be as inclusive as possible. I've put in like, I think seven languages in there. Um, but I was, uh, I, right now, a bunch of South Asian authors and I are reading The God of Small, rereading The God uh -huh. of Small Things because it's the 25th year anniversary. Yeah. And it's fascinating to read it after a, uh, so many years yeah. because there are certain words that Roy has used, which is how we would speak is it's daily yeah. speak? That's how you would speak, or it's a, it's a conversion of Malayalam into into uh, English or Hindi yeah. into English, and uh, and she doesn't apologize for it at all. And you just go with the flow, and it's become part of our vocabulary as writers that we just use that. And she's been trailblazing for a quarter uh, of a century uh, in her activism using words uh, yeah. as a social justice tool. Um, like yesterday when we were sort of like talking, mm. preparing this, I sort of like brought up a question I was thinking of asking of like, what does it feel like? D does it feel different? Like, how does it feel different to write in English, mm. um, Bengali or Hindi? And, you know, your response, like, made me very aware of my naivete about this idea. Yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, and your, I, don't your think, I don't think you were being naive. You you just you didn't think of it that way. That's all. Yes, <laughs> That's but your all. your your response was just like, I don't write in Bengali or Hindi or Punjabi or Tamil. I was ve very impressed that with the other regional languages. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I was I was born in the state of Orissa, uh -huh. um, which is a southeastern part of the state, right below West Bengal, where my parents came from. So I grew up with a lot of Oriya people. So till I was three or four, I knew Oriya. That was the only language I knew. And then because my parents were Bengali, they started teaching me Bengali, but 
Oriya was my go-to language. And then learned Bengali because of the parents. We moved to Delhi, so I learned Hindi. But then because we were in a Catholic school, because education is great in Catholic schools, so you learn English. And then when you're learning English, because your classmates are either Punjabis or, or um, Haryanvis, so you, you, you learn these languages from Northern India. And you learn a little bit of Urdu because Urdu, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful languages in the whole wide world. And everybody needs to learn this. I don't, I'm not good at it, but <laughs> if you haven't heard poetry in Urdu, you have not lived. <laughs> so, you know, you end up as, as most Indians will tell you, you end up learning a lot of languages. However, at the end of the day, what's your go-to language? that you used to write and for me it's always been English it's always been English um and and can I if anything the next language would be Hindi uh -huh. um, but uh but English is is my and you know I've lived in this country longer than I've lived in India so now English is even how I think like I use those words to think so it's been an interesting transition of of um, using a colonizer's language to talk about colonization um one of my favorite, like, just language choices that you make is from the very first moment, referring to your now ex-husband as your now ex-husband. And that first essay about him, like you, there are so many ways that you do this, like, um, in, um, in the essay about uh, Samin Nosrat, is that her name? Samin Nosrat. Yes, like you, like you create such nice tension in sort of like respect and regard, but always acknowledging her privilege. Oh, that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. So I'll just ask that. Sure. You like when you present her as being not like you label her repeatedly as not too different. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the sort of like interesting weight on that phrase that it was like, a compliment and a criticism. It was admiration and distance. And I just, what, like, what did that mean to you? So thank you for asking that question because it was very difficult to write this without sounding disdainful because I'm not. I, yeah. think, I think Samin Nosrat really opened a lot of doors for a lot of people of color. Uh, hands down, and she continues to do that. Uh, however, if Samin Nosrat were um, darker, um, bigger, uh, with an accented English, not coming from La Jolla, California, uh, not having eaten at um, Chez Panisse, at age eight, 19 with her boyfriend at that time um, or working with Michael Pollan. Oh, you know, there are many things that, that have propelled um, Samin to get to the place where she has. Now, um, what is her, her book is fantastic because it doesn't use photographs, which I think is really amazing. She's a San Diego gal, so I will always be team, <laughs> always be team Samin. Um, but but if you really look at it from the perspective of other other uh, chefs, uh, for example, Chef Garima Kotari, uh, who died during the pandemic, 
and why she didn't get the recognition that I think she rightly deserved. And I will continue to talk about those kind of folks who are working in the kitchens or in the background and you never hear about them is because they don't fit the mold by which white audiences feel comfortable. You got to feel comfortable. I mean, nobody feels comfortable talking to me. <laughs> I mean, they don't. It's like, what is this woman saying? It's like, oh, you're making me uncomfortable. Please don't do that. What? Like, you do such a nice job of balancing so many identities on a knife's edge of really sort of, like, putting into play all of the forces contributing to who they are mm -hmm. and having your own opinion and journey with them, but putting all of those things on the record in a way that was really great. And, like, above and beyond everything, and I thought it just made your, your first essay about your now ex-husband made him seem real hot. Like it made you feel what was hot and great about him and like close and distant at the same time. And like, I I just thought it was really great. Um, I mean, my other big question about sort of your stylistic choices, you, you sort of use collage, um, you know, juxtaposition between multiple stories and like in a way that is like, really subtle and not obvious like the essay that is about your in-laws coming to visit mm -hmm. for the first time and like um counterposing that with the story of this parata stand was like so subtle and beautiful and i was just like is this something that you plan is this something that in the process of writing you find these tangents and you build them together what is the process like mm. Yeah, I think it has to do with the, the scientific brain and the logical brain <laughs> taking over. Usually, I, this is how I think. This is the braided form of essays that I really love writing. Yeah, um, this is how when I'm walking the dog, or rather the dog is walking me. Um, <laughs> you know, I think about uh, because you suddenly realize, oh, that's the connection. It's not that you. I. A lot of people write braided essays as two separate essays and then combine. I've always written them simultaneously in parallel yeah. and then edited them out um but i this this so there's a personal story to this memoir and then there's a more universal story that i wanted to talk about i also did not want to talk about it from the perspective of of woe is me life is so sad look at me i'm so you know i'm so down and out was i down and out yes um 48 of south asian women in this country have experience some form of domestic partner abuse, um, which means every other South Asian woman you're, you're meeting has a story that you haven't heard. That's the reason why I wanted to talk about it, but I also didn't want to talk about it and 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 go through this, this, this whole concept of, uh, well, they were awful and I'm so awesome. Um, that's not what, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. We all have, you know, tendencies that are not cool. Um, and then we start to work on it, but you can't, you can't, you can't work with someone with mental health issues, uh, but you cannot work in a marriage when the other person is not acknowledging the mental health. Yeah. Issues. So, um, so that's, so for me, it was very important that I gave everyone the respect that they deserve, whether or not they gave that respect back to me is immaterial. It is that's immaterial. their book. Yeah, it's their book. They can write that book. <laughs> Um, so with my in-laws, um, the story was exactly what it was. Um, I was too young and I was too immature to, to, um, 
to understand what was going on. Uh, I really wanted to be liked. <laughs> that's very simple. I just wanted, please like me, please like me. Um, and that's what it came down to. But then, you know, when I was reading up and researching this, uh, this Paratha stall in, in um, Singapore, and Singapore is another wonderful place that everybody needs to go just to eat. I really highly recommend that. And, you know, if, if people come back and say, oh, well, Singapore is so hot. Um, yeah, so just go have a good time. Um, and so when I was reading that, it, it was just so obvious what was happening there. And yeah. to me, it just made sense for me to braid it with, with this story. One of the other things, like, first of all, um, in your essay about your experience of partition and um, the the Punjabi restaurants mm -hmm. in in San Diego is it's uh, tandoori. Punjabi tandoori. Uh, Punjabi I, I need tandoori. to take you there when when you come down. I mean, I would I would love that. Uh, like your your integration of COVID had me so fucking scared that that nephew was going to die by the end of it. It was so it was so beautifully done, and I was like so racked with emotions that I was like, oh my God, there's only one way this ends. And then he didn't, and I was so really, but one of the things I love about this book is that the last two years have not been excised from it. Like I work in television where we still pretend that this world hasn't changed, where I have to watch 200 extras pull off their mask so we can shoot a scene where we pretend that COVID never happened. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it is part of the texture of this book as much as your marriage was, or is, and as much as like partition is, like was just so satisfying, you know? Like, was that a conscious decision well, to like, no, that that's a great question. Thank you for giving me the the television uh, you know angle to this because um, people have been creating art through this traumatic phase. What are we going to say 20, 30 years from now? What were we doing when we were when we were in this? And I think most of us were sitting here and waiting for it to pass. And while we were doing that, there were things we were doing, whether it was, Sardo starters, whether writing a book, you know, we were doing something. And uh, and when I when this book proposal was accepted by University of Iowa Press, uh, there was no pandemic to be discussed. There wasn't anything to talk about. But I actually rewrote thirty percent of this book because I wanted to include the pandemic in there because it's not that the pandemic happened and nobody died and everybody's fine. A lot of people died. A lot of um, trauma happened that we haven't even dug into. But what I wanted to talk about this was from the perspective of, of hope, the perspective of hope and what, what do we do at the end of this? Uh, do we have, is there an end? Because life never ends, you know, your life may end, my life may end, yeah. but you know, life doesn't end in general. Like so, so much discourse over the last six years has been so fatalistic and nihilistic. And like that that perspective of life goes on, like there are four-year-olds out there who are gonna need to live in this world. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say this world is fucked. You can't just say American democracy is over. You know, we you gotta could. try something. I mean, you, you could. But it's, <laughs> but it's real, real fucking mean to that four-year-old. All right, yes. I have my final question. Yes, sir. You. Mm -hmm. live in the finest city in America, I San sure do. Diego. Yes, I do. 
you are Bengali. Like you are people who know and understand fish about as well as anyone on the planet. What are the aesthetics you look for in a fish taco? Mm, a fish taco. Okay, which which one's your favorite one in San Diego though, guy? Okay, I am unsophisticated. I'm always just like, I'm in San Diego. I'll get a fish taco anywhere and it will probably be one of the 10 best fish tacos I've had in my life. That's true. There's an old town Mexican cafe that makes the best fish tacos, but there's a gas station fish taco that I need to take you to that's 99 oh. And it's mystery mystery fish, but it's a white fish. You want a white fish. It's got to hold, hold the, when it's battered, it's got to hold it. Like you can't have grilled fish tacos. I mean, no. come on. Like, it's like saying, oh, I baked a samosa. Like, <laughs> who does that? Yeah. But but what makes a fish taco is uh, are the salsas. I mean, that's what, that's. Like, that's to, like it, the, the amount of contrasting textures and flavors mm-hmm. that you can have in the same space with a fish taco. It's is the best. Always so delightful. 99 cents is even better. <laughs> Well, on the subject of mystery fish, like I just, the, the best piece of advice my mother ever gave me when it came to consuming foods from outside of my own cultural tradition was those bitches know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a basic understanding of those bitches know what they're doing. Like, uh, I, like I called her from law school and I was like, there's this raw Ethiopian raw beef Ethiopian dish and it looks very, very good. But do you think that that will be like safe? And you know, she was just like, they're surviving. And I think it's important <laughs> to remember those bitches know what they're doing. Oh, um, oh you're the best. Madhushri Ghosh, <laughs> you are a bitch who truly knows what she's doing. <laughs> Thank um, you so or much. Or I'm faking it as we go along, but so are you. And I love you for that. Thank you. I love you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time, Madrushi and Guy. That was awesome. So much fun. Um, today's guests were Madrushi Ghosh and Guy Branham. You can order a copy of K-Bar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory, and Family at skylightbooks.com or come by and swing, uh, pick it up in the store. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks again to our guests. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.